all of our youngins. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat pocket in the pew, a couple of them in each row, and you're welcome to to use that this morning. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. It's a short passage. It's the second half of Paul's paragraph where he's resuming his thoughts before he begins his prayer in verse 14. It starts out with this word, to me. To me. So, to get the context, Paul is preaching to the Gentiles that they are part of the same body, that they are partakers of the promises. It's all done through the gospel. Paul became a minister of this grace. And it was God's effective power that was working. And then he says, to me, of all people, to me, who am less than the least of all saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the stewardship or what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom, in Jesus that is, we have boldness, and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. You may be seated. There are several things that, that Paul points out to the Ephesian believers and This paragraph, he's really telling them that it's amazing that God would use such creatures as us to participate in his eternal plan of redemption. That God has a plan that was before the foundation of the world. That God has an eternal plan from all the ages that were hidden. They were a mystery. They were hidden in God. But now, Paul says, I get to participate in this. And and I don't deserve it to me, Paul says. I'm less than the least of all the saints. And and I get to be this dispenser of good news. I'm telling people that there is a creator that loves them. That you can know where you came from in life. And you can know that there is a standard of morality. There is right and wrong. Those things are clearly defined. 
And your life has a purpose. You're not just a random accident of the cosmos that doesn't have any explanation for being here, any explanation for your moral compass that you have, and no real purpose in life because when you die, it will all end anyway. Paul says, no, we one day are going to display the manifold wisdom of God as his people. And so he kind of sums up what I call a worldview. Now, every one of you this morning has a worldview. You might not call it a worldview. You might just say, this is just the way I look at life, your view of reality. So a worldview, Christian apologists, those who defend the Christian faith, say a worldview needs to have four different things. And I'll just explain them really quick for you. One, a worldview needs to explain origins. Where did we come from? What, what caused earth to be here rather than nothing? Why is the earth so organized? Why do I have human feelings and emotion? Why do I cry? Why do I rejoice? Why do I have hopes? And the Bible says it's because you and I were created in the image of God. So it helps us to understand our origin. Our worldview does that. And Paul in this passage says that God has brought everything to pass through Jesus Christ, the one who created everything. He is the creator. Jesus is. Jesus is God. He's eternal. A worldview has to explain morality. Why do I know intuitively that some things are just wrong? Why do I know it's wrong to lie? Why do I know it's wrong to steal, to covet what is not mine, to hurt someone's feelings intentionally? We know intuitively those things are written on our hearts. It says in Romans chapter 2. Because there is an absolute moral lawgiver, and God is love. God is love. He is the very essence of what love is. And when they came and asked Jesus, what is the greatest ethic that man should live by? Jesus answered this, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is kind. Love is patient. Love does not seek its own. Love does not keep track of wrongs. Love does not rejoice in evil. Love rejoices in what is good. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. So what is the greatest moral ethic is to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 13 and verse 10. He says, love is the fulfillment of the law. It fulfills every command. I don't covet, I don't lie, I don't steal because I'm loving my neighbor as myself. I have no other gods before me. I do not take God's name in vain. Why? Because I love the Lord thy God with all my heart, with all my strength, and all my soul. And so our moral ethic becomes, comes from the truth that there is an absolute law giver. Thirdly, a worldview has to show us our purpose in life. Why am I even here? What is the meaning of life? What is the existence of life all about? And Paul tells us that that eternal purpose is found in Jesus Christ. Let me just read it to you again. To the intent, 
that through Jesus Christ, that the manifold wisdom of God might be known by the church to principalities and power in heavenly places according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And our purpose is to make all men see what is the fellowship of this mystery, which from the beginning of ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. What a privilege it is to be part of that plan, that God has a purpose for life, and we are complete. When you come to know Jesus Christ, you are made complete. You were made in God's image. You and I are sinners, and therefore we have marred that, and we are separated from God. And God has intended you and I to have eternal fellowship with our Heavenly Father. That is the purpose of life. John writes this, The things that I have seen, the things that I have heard, that my hands have handled concerning the words of life. I am writing these things to you that your joy may be full. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. And I am writing these things so that you may have fellowship with us. And if we walk in the light as God is light, then we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's the purpose of life. You and I were created in the image of God. We are fallen creatures. We are sinful creatures. And in Christ Jesus, we are created new again. And we are recreated in the image of the one who made us. In other words, we are given the mind of Christ again. And everything that Adam lost in the garden has been redeemed through the person of Christ. That's our purpose, to walk with him. This is life eternal, John 17, 3, that you might know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Now, what is our origin? What is our destiny? Where do we go? Jesus has an answer for that one as well, John 14, verses 1 through 3. You believe in God, Jesus said, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. That is our eternal destiny to be with God in eternity, that we as His church might make known to all principalities and powers, angels, seraphims, and teraphims who are in the very presence of God and worshiping God, saying, holy, 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 night and day, that one day the church is going to show God's eternal manifold wisdom Every dispensation, God was working to bring people into a relationship with Him. And we as the church get to do that. Now, I'm just going to use one other worldview and show how these worldviews are inconsistent. A worldview must be completely consistent and it must correspond to reality. Now, how does the Christian worldview stay consistent? One, we believe there's an eternal God. He's outside of creation. He's orderly and he's all wise and he's loving. Therefore, there is a moral absolute. Therefore, there's a purpose to life. And therefore, there's a destination when we end this life. Now, I'm just going to pick on the atheist for a second because the atheist actually has a consistent worldview, but there is an inherent contradiction within atheism. And you'll probably pick it out quickly. But atheism would say that there is no origin, okay? 
There was absolutely nothingness for eternality, and everything that you see around you arose out of absolutely nothing. Now, that does not correspond to reality, does it? For every single effect, we always see a cause. That's reality, folks. I've got a dent in the front of my truck. That's, that's reality. And that's the effect of me not keeping my eye on the road as well. But there was a cause. For everything, there is a cause. So in atheism, there is no cause. And you can't catch the Christian out. Because our God is not physical. Our God does not have flesh and bones, contrary to what false prophets would teach. Our God, Jesus said it, not me, John 14, 23, Jesus said, God is spirit. The Apostle Paul says, now unto the king eternal, immortal, God is not a man, invisible, the only wise God, be glory forever and ever, amen. You see in chapter 4 of chapter uh, of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says everything that you can see is temporary. God cannot be seen. He is the invisible God. Because our God is eternal, who exists outside of time, outside of space, and outside of matter. Therefore, we don't have an infinite regress as other false worldviews do have. Now, for an atheist to be consistent, he would have to say, we don't come from anywhere. There is no ultimate purpose to life. There's no purpose. None. Because when I die, it's as if I didn't even exist. So there is no ultimate purpose. It might be happy for 70 years or to enjoy things for 70 years, but then you're gone. So there's no ultimate purpose to life. There is no consistent reason for morality. Now, I'm not saying atheists are immoral people or have no moral standards at all, but if they do have a moral standard, they are inconsistent with their worldview. In what way? There's no absolute lawgiver. Therefore, to say that it's wrong to murder, that's simply a subjective idea. It's not an objective idea. What I mean by an objective idea, there's no standard by which I can say that that's right or wrong. Because I might think it's right to kill somebody to get what I want. Why? There's no God that I have to answer to. There's no one who says that that's a moral absolute. But according to the Bible, you and I are created in the image of God. Therefore, every single person has eternal worth. And there is no destiny. So Christianity, in my understanding, in my estimation, is the best explanation for why I'm here, where I came from, my belief in morality, and where I'm going. And God, you know what He has done? He has privileged us to participate in this eternal plan. You and I are privileged to participate in this. My point number one, participating in God's eternal plan is extremely humbling. Can you imagine how humbled the Apostle Paul felt when he wrote this? He is talking about what God has called him to do, that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs, that he gets to, uh, to manifest to, to, to the sons of men what had never been revealed before by the Holy Spirit. He gets to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ. He gets to tell people about God's eternal wisdom that was hidden from the ages. And he starts out this passage by saying, to me, it's very, very emphatic, to me, who am less than the least of all saints, this grace was given. 
when we consider who we are and that God has given us grace, everything that you and I do is because of grace. If God has given you a spiritual gift and you're using it in this body, or if you're using it out in the world to be a blessing to other people, you know what? That was a grace gift given to you. And it's humbling to understand that everything that I own, every thought that I have, every good thing that I do is because of God's grace. It's humbling. And Paul starts out saying, I know what I used to be. And to me, God has given this grace. Well, this morning, you can remember what you used to be. And God has given you grace. That's humbling. It's humbling considering what we get to do. Paul goes on to say, This grace was given to me to proclaim or to herald good news. What a joy it is. That is humbling to think that you and I are messengers of good news. God could have chosen angels to do this. God could write it up in the sky. But instead, God has chosen to use you and I to be his mouth, to be his hands and his feet. How humbling is that? When you watch Samaritan's Purse and they go into a place that's been devastated, to think God can use you and I to bring good news to other people. Not only do, they, do we get to bring good news, we get to bring light to people. We enlighten them. Look at verse 8 with me. To me, less than all the saints, this grace was given. First thing is that I should preach among the Gentiles. And what do we get to preach? We preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. In Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When you find Jesus Christ, you have found it all. Everything that you've been looking for in life. Jesus tells this parable about the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven like? And he says, it's like a man. And, and he's out walking around and he sees this incredible treasure. And he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sell everything that I've got. And I'm going to go buy this field, and then that treasure is mine. It's like a man who's looking for pearls, and he finds this incredible pearl, and doesn't tell anybody about it, and he sells everything that he's got so he can go buy and purchase that pearl. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. When we find Jesus, we have found the unsearchable riches of him, and it's worth selling out everything. And you and I get to bring people into that light. To bring spiritual awakening to people and say, you know what? I have found something that is of eternal value. That's humbling that God has taken people like you and I. We preach good news. We preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And we bring to light to people who need it desperately. Verse 9 to make all see what is the fellowship of this mystery, that you get to participate in it, that God wants you as a part of his family, and we get to bring to light. The word to see, make all men see, literally it's the Greek word photizo, where we get the word photo, but it means to enable someone to understand it, to explain the gospel to people. And Paul says, I am less 
than the least of all saints, and this grace was given to me, that I might preach the unfathomable virtues of Christ, so that I might make all men see what is this fellowship that everybody can participate in the life that God has for them in Christ Jesus. So it's humbling. The third thing that's humbling is when we consider God's purpose. Look at verse 10. It's literally that, that now or to the intent. This is what God is going to do one day. So Paul has been given this this incredible gift of preaching about Jesus. It's a grace gift. He didn't deserve it. He didn't merit it. He's telling people about the unsearchable riches of Christ. He's making people see what this fellowship is all about. And here's the final purpose, verse 10. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be known by the church. That's you and I. You and I one day are going to be on display. And we're going to be on display to principalities, to rulers, authorities, in heavenly places. That is all the angelic hosts that can't even be numbered, myriad of myriads of angelic beings that stand in the presence of God. And they wanted to look into salvation, it says in 1 Peter. And they don't understand salvation. One day they're going to see this is what God was doing in the church, his people, Jews, Gentiles, Afghanis. Puerto Ricans, you name it, Mexico. God is bringing them all together. He says, you know what? I love these people, and these people are my bride, and I've redeemed them, I've forgiven them, I've cleansed them, and now I'm not ashamed to call them my brothers and sisters in Christ. And one day we are going to display all of that. God's wisdom was so incredible. I want you to turn over to Romans just real quick and, and, and look at God's wisdom. Romans chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 30. And Paul is just dumbfounded at the manifold wisdom. The word manifold, it's not something that you put on an automobile. It means various facets. And and what Paul is saying that Throughout eternity, throughout every single age, God has always purposed to bring people to faith. And He's done it in all kinds of various shades. Sometimes it was through the person of Abraham. And kings would be rebuked for taking Sarah. Sometimes it was through Joseph, a slave sold down in Egypt. And brothers came to know Jesus. They came to know the God of eternity. Pharaoh and the entire empire of Egypt came to know the one true God. And then God used Joshua to bring them into a promised land to show all nations God's holy injustice. And so the manifold wisdom of God means throughout time, God's doing these really unique things, picking Rahab out of all people. And then during the time of the judges, picking a woman like Ruth to be a part of God's eternal purposes. And then during the captivity, taking a woman like Esther, and Esther coming in before King Ahasuerus and declaring to 
all the world that we are the God, we're the people of the covenant of God. And I love what Mordecai's wife finally says. Mordecai's wife says, if this is a Jewish man that you're, that you're picking on, <laughs> oh, uh, if, if Mordecai's a Jew and Haman, you're messing with, with one of God's people, you're going to fall before him. Why? Because throughout all time, God was showing his manifold wisdom of what he was doing through a nation and now through the church and now through individuals, bringing people to faith in Christ. And Paul, writing to the, Rome, uh, writing to the Romans, trying to get their head around what God is doing with the Jewish people. Why has God blinded the Jewish nation? Why are Gentiles getting saved and the Jews are not getting saved? That doesn't make sense. Has, has God's covenant promises failed? And Paul says, may it never be. And he's summing up what God is doing, why Jews are not getting saved at that moment. And in verse 30, he starts out by saying, For as you were once disobedient, he's talking to Gentiles, as you Gentiles were once disobedient to God, yet now you have obtained mercy through their disobedience. Jesus purposed to go to the cross because his own nation would reject him. And in the manifold wisdom of God, God allowed the Jewish people to nail their Messiah on a cross. And Jesus said in John chapter 12, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And so what is God doing through the disobedience of the Jews? He's now saying, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. I'm going to give them mercy. Verse 31, even so these also have now been disobedient, the Jews, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. The manifold wisdom of God. He's picking Gentiles who were not a people, who were not a part of the covenant, who were not a part of the promises, who were not a part of the citizenship of the house of Israel. We're reading all that in the book of Ephesians, aren't we? And you know what God is doing? He's making Jews jealous. He earlier said that in that same chapter. He says, I want to provoke Jews to jealousy so if they don't remain in their unbelief, God can graft them back in. People who are not a part of the elect people of God can be grafted in by faith and thereby come a part of his elect body. The wisdom of God, the manifold plan. And Paul goes on to say, verse 32, For God has committed, that word committed, means to shut up. In fact, if you've got a New American Standard or ESV, it uses the word shut up. But it's a word that's used in Luke chapter 5 where Peter throws out his net and it encompasses a great multitude of fish. So the King James and the New King James is a very good translation. He's committed them. He's enclosed them. He has shut them up, so to speak. He's wrapped every one of us up in this room in sin. And there's no way out of it. There is absolutely no way out other than Jesus Christ. And what has God used to commit us all, to enclose us all in sin? You go over to Galatians chapter 3, we don't have time today, but Galatians chapter 3 and verse 22 and 23, it says that God in His manifold wisdom has committed all to sin because the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ Christ. 
so that we all might be justified by faith. And God, in His manifold wisdom, has given the Jew a, a, a Ten Commandment. And those Ten Commandments have confined them. They've, they've locked them under sin. There's no way that you can keep every one of those Ten Commandments. And God has given everyone in this room a conscience. And every one of us in this room have violated our conscience. We've all done things that we knew that we weren't supposed to do. We're all committed under sin. Now, what does God want to do now that we're committed all under sin? He's committed all of them to disobedience. Why? That He might have mercy on all. Oh, look at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become His counselor? Who has first given to Him and it shall be repaid to Him? For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And it's humbling to think that God has taken just common folks like you and I. Look at our calling this morning. There's not many wise. There's not many noble. There's not many rich. You know what God is doing? God is choosing the weak things to confound the mighty. God is using the weak things to confound the strong. God is using the base things of this world, the things that are not, to bring down the things that are are. And God doesn't use the worldly wisdom. God's manifold wisdom is incredible. And you and I get to participate in that, share good news with people, bring people unto an understanding of the light of the gospel and the fellowship of that mystery, what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And one day we are going to show to principalities and powers in heavenly places. This is what God has always wanted to do with His creation. God's eternal purpose is accomplished when people know Christ. Verses 11 through 13. According to His eternal purpose, which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness, and access with confidence through him in faith. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulation for you, which is your glory. Paul says, don't worry about me. Paul was writing him from prison. Paul had been beaten. He had been shipwrecked. He had been stoned to death. They had to let him out in a basket over a wall in the city of Damascus. And he says, you know what? That's no big deal. He says, I beg you, therefore, don't lose heart because of my afflictions. You know, I think believers in persecuted countries today, I think that they would say the exact same thing. Don't lose heart over our afflictions. That Afghan man who left Russia and went back to his own people. Why? I think this verse tells us why you would do something like that. Which is your glory. Don't worry about me. I get to bring people into this incredible, incredible relationship with Jesus Christ. According to his eternal purpose. It's consummated in Christ. Our corporate election in Christ Jesus was before the foundation of the world. 
<coughs> excuse me, as a part of the body of Christ, we are given an essential part to play. When we know Christ, we have free and confident access. Verse 12, in Christ. Everything was accomplished. Everything was accomplished in Christ. And in Christ, we have boldness with access, I'm sorry, and access with confidence. And it's through faith in Him. Now, this is a technical word where it says access. The word access was used of a high-ranking official. And that high-ranking official had a special deputy given, and only that special deputy could bring you into the audience with that high-ranking official. You couldn't just go walking in. You remember the story of Esther? I already talked about it this morning. No one could walk in before that high-ranking official without him holding out the golden or the scepter. No one can come in to the presence of a holy God. No one. God is too holy to behold sin. But Jesus Christ became sin for us. And Jesus Christ invites you and I to come into the very holy presence of God. The high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament one day a year. That was a picture of Jesus. For we have such a high priest who is holy, undefiled, separate from sinners, eternal in the heavens. The writer of Hebrews puts it like this. Through faith in him, having therefore boldness to enter into the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith. And this morning I quoted Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, for we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near to the throne of grace with boldness, that we may obtain mercy and find help in our time of need. God's eternal purpose was found in Jesus Christ, and in Christ we have boldness, open face, frank speech, free dialogue with a holy and righteous God. And we do it with confidence through the faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul says, don't worry about me. Don't worry about what's happening in my life. I know I'm in prison. I know I've been beaten. I know I've been shipwrecked. I know I've gone without food. But it's for your glory. And it's worth it all. There is no greater joy than helping others understand this eternal purpose. Never think that it's in vain serving Christ or get discouraged because of your circumstances or because they don't go well. Before I close, I just want to quote Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24. It's a verse that I've had difficulty understanding until this week when I, when I read this, when he talked about don't uh, faint because of my afflictions. In, in Colossians, 
and I'll, I'll read it just so I don't mess it up. Paul says, I now therefore rejoice. I, I, now, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. Now, how can he do that? How can he rejoice in his sufferings for others? Because I am filling up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. The afflictions that Jesus Christ felt. Paul says, you know what? I get to participate in that. In my flesh, I get to say, I participate with what happened to Christ. Christ finished his race. I want to finish my race, Paul said. You and I, we get to finish our race. And we can rejoice in our sufferings. Because we are participating in the afflictions that were meant for Jesus. I am filling up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions for Christ. And who do we get to do it for? For the sake of the body, which is the church. The eternal purpose is completed in Christ. God's eternal purpose is consummated in Christ. When we know Christ, we have confident access And there is no greater joy than helping others understand this purpose. It's humbling to know that God is allowing you and I to participate in His eternal purpose. When we consider who we are, and we consider the grace that is given to us, when we consider that we get to herald and to preach the unsearchable wealth of Christ, that we get to make all men see what is this fellowship of this mystery, And one day the church is going to be on display to all principalities and powers. What a humbling thing that is. We, as His people, we get to participate in God's eternal purpose. And that gives life purpose and meaning beyond you and I and beyond this life. This morning we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to pray. and.